In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And we have, huh. <laughs> yeah, we're back, but boy, we wish we didn't have to be back like this. So today we're going to talk about the speakership battle, mm-hmm. and then we are going to talk about the Israel-Palestine conflict, and yep. man, I gotta say, when we started our break, I was a little, I was a little upset that the whole sh- that all the shit with the speakership went down literally the week after because I was like, oh, this would be so fun to do a segment about, mm-hmm. and I and I and I knew that when we got back that that would be the biggest story. Yeah, you thought. And then the Middle East went to war. Yeah. And yeah. we are so fucked. It was quite a vacation, honestly. Like. <laughs> really trying to stay disconnected from all this stuff and i'm like like we're literally trying to go to national parks and we're like not sure if the government's going to be open and then it's like yay the government's open and then like a week later it's like holy fuck israel and yeah palestine are at war so yeah yeah, pretty fucking crazy just to warn you all um this is gonna be a sad one Mm -hmm. this is gonna be a depressing one um if you really don't want depressing then just yeah. listen to our first segment. Yeah. Because that's depressing in a different way. It's depressing in a funny way. It's one yeah. of those, you know, ha ha, we're all so fucked instead of a, we are truly fucked. Yeah. Let's go into it. So mm-hmm. our, our least depressing segment for today deals with the complete and utter incompetence of those that are supposed to govern us and whether or not the government will stay open and uh, thus affecting the lives of millions of workers all around the United States that depend on their own salary, uh, whose salaries depend on the government staying open. Um, Boy, you really know how to lighten the mood. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, so two weeks ago. So how's how's Speaker Kevin McCarthy doing? Well, uh, I don't know who you're talking about. I know a dude named Kevin McCarthy, but I don't know anybody named Speaker Kevin McCarthy. <laughs> what? Did something happen? Yeah. So about two weeks ago, something happened for the first time in American history. The Speaker of the House of Representatives was fired via a vote uh, to vacate the, the speakership. So, uh, yeah. Which I will say, I, I'm i actually kind of surprised that this is the first time that's ever happened. Me too. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've had some pretty contentious times in American history. I think, like, yeah. I think what marks this one is the infighting. Because typically yeah. you'll have contention between the parties. And even if they're, like, you know, even if they uh, totally hate each other, if they're really, like, polarized, um, as long as you have cohesion on one side and one side has a majority, which they have to have, like, you're you're fine. You elect a speaker. But... I feel like it's the infighting on the Republican side that's really making the difference this time. Yeah, absolutely. So what happened? Why did why did Kevin McCarthy get ousted by his own party? Yeah. What's going yeah. what's going on here? Okay, so let's get into it. So as we already mentioned, Kevin McCarthy, the speaker, was ousted by members of his own party. Plus all the Democrats. So basically, you know, we have a really closely divided house. Uh, and uh, it only takes a few people defecting uh, to to get a majority on any given issue. And so part of the reason Kevin McCarthy was ousted was kind of the result of groundwork that was laid right at the beginning of his speakership back in January. So in a way, like, I have been kind of expecting this. I think the nation has been kind of expecting that at some point McCarthy would be uh, ousted as speaker. Um, yeah. And part of the reason we thought that and we've been thinking that is, first of all, it took 15 votes to even get him the gavel as speaker. And in order to get the farthest right members of 
um, the Republicans in the House to support his bid for speaker and then elect and elect him with a simple majority. Um, he had to give in a bunch of concessions. And so one of the concessions that Kevin McCarthy made is establishing a rule that any one member of the House can initiate a motion to vacate the speakership. And so all then it takes is enough people to vote to vacate for to to like remove him from that position. And so basically because the House is so closely divided, all it takes is a few members of the hard right faction of the Republicans to join all the Democrats in order to remove Kevin McCarthy from his position. So they basically installed a uh, a dunking booth on the <laughs> speaker's chair and gave everybody a button for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so like, yeah, it was a bit of a poison pill kind of from the beginning. Um, yeah. And so ultimately, like from that kind of desperate start, things have like only gotten more and more desperate for McCarthy throughout his uh, his speakership. And basically his whole goal has been to keep his job and to stay in power. And as a result, he's basically been playing all sides and lying to yeah. everybody just to try to keep things uh, afloat. And I mean, if I don't know how many TV shows like have that as the premise where like it yeah. just doesn't work. It's farcical. Eventually, yeah. the House of Cards, no pun intended, yeah. comes down. <laughs> Here's the thing about leadership in Washington. You need to be one of two things. All right. You need to be either reasonable or mm. ruthless, <laughs> all right? Um, and McCarthy is neither, mm -hmm. all right? You got leaders like Mitch McConnell, who is quite possibly the most effective leader that the Republicans in the Senate have ever had. Mm -hmm. uh, now, he is an evil piece of shit. Yeah. And he represents everything that is wrong with Washington. Sure. But sure. he is effective. He is absolutely yeah. effective. And he's effective because he's ruthless. Mm -hmm. All right. Which is why he has managed to stay where he is, despite the fact that he is not in Trump's good graces because mm -hmm. he just doesn't give a shit. Yeah. All right. And no he one fucking give a shit. crosses him. Yeah. No one crosses him. You yeah. know, he just, he literally just goes out there and says, yeah, I know I'm a corrupt piece of shit and everyone hates me. So what, what the fuck are you going to do about it? <laughs> like that's his, that's his whole thing. Not a All direct right? quote. This is a dramatization for effect. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin yeah. McCarthy, on the other hand, is such a fucking, and I know, I know Michael hates this word, but he is such a fucking cuck mm. and such a fucking weak-willed, spineless invertebrate. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, he is not at all reasonable. He is mm -hmm. not willing to reason with people that are... He's not willing to reach across the aisle and potentially mm -hmm. uh, create some level of compromise. He is still just as much of a Republican hack as anybody else. Yeah. And what's funny is that Democrats probably would have been willing to do some type of negotiation mm -hmm. with Kevin McCarthy to to give him just a few votes to let him keep his job if he had been willing to work with them on a permanent funding bill to to keep the government open and he didn't do that mm -hmm. so democrats were like okay fuck you we're voting along with the vacate with, with vacating you yeah and then he had the fucking nerve to come out there after he lost his speakership and say, well, this is because of the Democrats. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Are you kidding me, man? <laughs> Who controls the House? Who controls the House? Oh, yeah, it's Republicans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And you, Kevin McCarthy, never, like, tried to make a deal with Democrats to save your job. Like, you didn't, you weren't coming to the table. You were intentionally avoiding coming to the table. Um, and so ultimately, to your, yeah, to your point, it took eight hard right, Republicans to like fire Kevin McCarthy. Currently there's an interim um speaker. Basically all he can do is call for a vote for a new speaker. Um so that's kind of <laughs> where we are right now. Um and so all of this was kicked off uh by negotiations over funding the government. Um and so if you recall over the summer we had a uh a debt crisis and um McCarthy used that crisis to get 
uh, to negotiate with Biden terms to reduce uh, key spending in the budget. And so they reached this budget deal, which was truly a compromise in a lot of ways. Like both parties gave on some stuff. Ultimately, like it seems like Biden had a bit of the upper hand, but like partially, you know, when when the hostage taker is willing to shoot the hostage, i.e. when Kevin McCarthy's willing to shut, like let the U.S. default on its debt, you pretty much have to give in on some stuff. But then because the hard right faction within the Republican House uh, majority uh, was not happy with that deal, when it came uh, around for to allocate additional government funding, which is a separate, um, a separate process to keep the government open just a few weeks ago, um, the hard right faction was putting pressure on McCarthy to renege on his deal with Biden and push for more spending cuts, which, so basically at this point, McCarthy has lied to everybody in in the house to the democrats republicans the president and basically has trust of nobody and so at the last minute um at the end of september uh mccarthy kind of finally caved and ended up supporting and and allowing a bill to come to the floor uh and that ultimately passed that continued there was a continuing resolution to fund the government through the 17th of november and ultimately like this was critical because keeping the government open, as Nathan mentioned, affects literally millions of people's lives, uh, not only people that are paid by the government, but people that rely on government assistance for, you know, eating. <laughs> um, and the hard right Republicans were so fucking pissed off about this that they initiated this motion to vacate. But ultimately, like, McCarthy laid all of his he like made his own bed here because to Nathan's point, McCarthy had never like sufficiently worked with Democrats to demonstrate any kind of goodwill that might enable them to save his job. And he had lied to his, to the Republicans on his side as well, or at least so they claimed. And so like there was, he literally was out of sufficient yeah. allies to just keep his job in this case just because he kept and fucking look, over everybody. And look, that goes back to what I was saying about either being reasonable or being yeah. ruthless. If yeah. he were ruthless, he would have either he would have either demanded what the rest of his party was uh was calling for. Mm -hmm. He would have he would have shut that shit down. Mm -hmm. And and if he was reasonable, he would have worked with Democrats. Yeah. All right? And you have to do one or the other and he did neither. Yeah. So, that is why he's no longer speaker. Yep. Exactly. Um, which is somewhat nerve wracking because like, yes, Kevin McCarthy was a piece of shit who was basically being run by the, the most hard right faction of the Republican house. And yet we might be faced with like even worse options and mm. a looming crisis to that potentially will shut down the government again in mid November. So literally a month from now, um, we might be in the exact same situation without a speaker. So far, uh, we've gone through two potential options, uh, one of which is extremely unreasonable, and one of which is extremely fucking unreasonable. <laughs> one of which straight up said, at one point, I'm David Duke without the baggage. Mm -hmm. Who, by which, the like, way was the more reasonable one yeah. <laughs> that is it was the more reasonable we're talking about the more reasonable one i'm so really Steven curious Scalise, what david duke has if not baggage he's just <laughs> he's just a puppet made of baggage <laughs> what like if racism isn't baggage what is yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i i guess like i i'm all the racism of david duke but like people don't know me yeah I guess. exactly without I'm the name recognition <laughs> yeah i'm such an insignificant figure in u.s politics right now yeah that you know at least people don't know how fucking racist i am mm -hmm. I, I don't know yeah uh, but uh so we we were thinking it might have been steve scalise for a hot second but mm -hmm. then some of the more reasonable republicans were like um i i'm not a huge fan of david duke actually I don't mm -hmm. really like that guy. He's he's not not great guy. Uh, so Scalise didn't have the votes. Mm -hmm. Now we are staring down the barrel of Jim fucking Jordan. 
Oh, man. And I will say, I made a prediction that I obviously wasn't able to share on the pod because we were off, but I made a prediction that I was wrong about. Hmm. Because I actually thought that Jim Jordan would have been the smartest choice for Republicans. Mm -hmm. Not for the country, obviously. Mm -hmm. He would have been the worst choice for the country, like, ever, of any of these people. Um, But what I was thinking was, this is a guy that definitely does have MAGA credentials. Yeah. Right? Like... But he also does have a certain level of establishment credentials, too. Because, I mean, this is a guy who sits as the uh, the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, which is an extremely prestigious role. Yeah. And you have to be some level of, you know, of like, you have to have good standing with the Republican Party at large in order to have a position like that. Yeah. So he is somebody who has... In my, you know, in my estimation, he was somebody with one foot in the establishment camp and one foot in the MAGA camp. Yeah. And because of that, I thought he might actually be able to unify people. However, apparently there are some more reasonable Republicans, more so than I thought there were, uh, that are actually really hung up on the fact that this is a dude who is still an election denier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, who was straight up cheering on the January 6th riots. Yeah. And still to this day, uh, believes that the, well, well, claims that he thinks that the election was stolen. Wow. So you're saying that the hard left, extremely liberal Republicans (laughs) that aren't in favor of electing a House Speaker that is in favor of overthrowing the government. Hmm. Wow. Mm. That's pretty remarkable. Apparently, apparently yeah. that's that's what it means to be a a hard left in the United States Congress, believing we shouldn't overthrow fucking America. <laughs> um, and so far and so far, it's looking like it might not be him either. There yeah. have been two votes, one of which obviously every Democrat voted against him, mm-hmm. joined by 20 Republicans. And then there was another vote where uh 22 Republicans voted against him. <laughs> good, so, good, making progress. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Stop, we're supposed to be going up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's an interesting, I think that's like a, a, an interesting effect here. Like the power vacuum that's occurring right now just demonstrates that these eight Republicans are really just, you know, chaos agents. They're yeah. they're not interested in governing. They're just trying to get headlines and attention, and you know, um, make sure that the house can't do anything. Um, yeah, which is what uh, House Rules Chair uh, Tom Cole said. He said, "quote Nobody knows what's going to happen next, including all the people that voted to vacate. They have no earthly idea what. They have no plan. They have no alternatives at this point. It's just simply a vote for chaos." And so it's just not clear what the path is like one one potential long shot is to actually take the temporary uh speaker who you know again can all he can do is just call for a vote um on a new speaker and attempt to expand his temporary powers at, at least to try to avoid a government shutdown in november um yeah. which is actually a uh an option that some moderate Democrats appear to potentially be supporting. Another big long shot is the potential for trying to establish some kind of coalition bipartisan like speakership, which is very intriguing to me, although it does not seem likely at all, Um, which would essentially be all the Democrats and, you know, it only takes a few Republicans to defect to select a, a uh, new speaker for the position that is kind of acceptable for for both sides and in a way kind of cobbled together uh, like a bipartisan person in the position. Although Democrats have, you know, said that they would expect significant rule, like power sharing rules in writing uh, that, you know, hmm. in order to be able to support this idea. So like yeah. the, the problem is like <laughs> the Republicans in the House at least my interpretation is they're more likely to just allow the government to 
remain in a stalemate and not function than they would be yeah. to join with Democrats to try to you know get some kind of functional person in a position. I mean, part of this just comes down to what the MO of the Republican Party is, mm-hmm. which the MO of the Republican Party is ineffective government. Yes. That's that's their whole thing. Yeah. It's, right? the, pr- it's electing, the proof of the thing that they always claim. Electing a Republican to run the government is like electing a vegan to run a burger place. Yeah, exactly. Like, they don't you value... Get shitty burgers. The, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they don't value the government actually functioning. They don't yeah. want the government to function because if the government actually functions, then that might that means that it might actually you know, help people in need. It yeah. might mean that the government might uh, regulate the big businesses that are the donors for these Republicans' campaigns. Mm-hmm. They don't want that, yeah. all right? So they don't have any incentive, they don't have any real incentive to actually make this go through, mm-hmm. to actually uh, get a real get a real speaker. Honestly, I have no idea how this is going to go. I, I don't, agree. I have no idea how this is going to end. I just... I'm, I am honestly wondering if this is just going to be the new norm mm-hmm. until the next election. Yeah, because I just I don't see them being able to cobble together votes for some. If if it can't be Jordan, it can't be Scalise. I mean, maybe they can try to put in uh, Patrick McHenry, uh, McHenry who's mm-hmm. the current interim with maybe a few democratic votes yeah if maybe they do some concessions maybe that can happen but like i just i don't know how this is going to end i have no predictions at all yeah same yeah i just i don't see how you get the far extremes of the republican party to meet in the middle anywhere like yeah i just don't the, it just doesn't add up you know except for one potential option nathan and this is the scariest one of them all. Oh, I know what you're about to say. Trump. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Trump was on Fox News um, and said, quote, I have been asked to speak as a unifier because I have so many friends in Congress. If they don't get the vote, they have asked me if I would consider taking the speakership until they get somebody long term because I'm running for president. They have asked me if I would take it for a short period of time for the party until they come to a conclusion. I'm not doing it because I want to. I will do it if necessary, should they not be able to make their decision. So when I heard that, I was like, (laughs) how the fuck is that even allowed? (laughs) Yeah, well, because the speaker does not have to actually be a rep. Blows my mind. They should just pick uh, it, fucking Joe Schmo out of, out of nowhere, <laughs> just like some random person. <laughs> so here's here's what I will say about that. Even if that does happen, I give it two weeks Tops. because yeah, yeah. Trump will would find the job so fucking boring. Exactly. You know what the speaker <laughs> does? Paperwork. <laughs> yeah. He would find the job so fucking boring yeah. that he would go nuts and just quit. Mm-hmm. I just I do not think there's any way he could like cuz again, the speaker's job is to basically call on other people to speak. Yeah. And he would hate that. <laughs> he would hate that. He's like, like <laughs> when they said to be the speaker, I thought they meant that I would get to speak all the time. But boy, <laughs> bad name, real bad. <laughs> yeah. Plus, according to at least the current House rules, if you are uh, charged with a felony that holds a potential sentence of up to two years or longer, then you're not eligible to be the House speaker. Now, they could change those rules, but even that would require, I think, I would assume that they would have to have a speaker do that so yeah, i don't know because like yeah. the only thing they can do is call a vote for another speaker <laughs> exactly <laughs> so yeah. and i think every time you know, there's if, a speaker question people are like hmm how about trump and it's like you guys do you guys just only know one name is that the problem <laughs> every other name you say has to be trump or you like i don't know get some kind of brain aneurysm like i don't it's it's absurd but yeah. So he's not going to be speaker, and he, hopefully, God damn it. Um, but like ultimately, to your point, Nathan, I have no clue where we go from here. I have no clue how this ends. And I really want the government to stay. And now it's time for a more lighthearted segment, 
Tips for good. So, Nathan, why do we do tips for good? Well, Michael, we do tips for good every week because then I saw her face. Mm -hmm. Now I'm a believer. Hmm. And not a trace of doubt in my mind. Hmm. I'm in love. Ooh. I'm a believer. I couldn't leave her if I tried. Wow. And you know what, Michael? Leaving her makes the world a better place. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, 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 wait. No, the no, love. No, no, no. Not leaving it. her. Not, not, love not makes the world. And not lo- leaving her. Gotcha. Okay, yeah, okay. Love, it, love makes the world a better place. Sorry, I really, her. I thought that was going in a different direction. No, 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 no. Okay, okay, gotcha. Oh, oh yeah. You know what else makes the world a better place? <laughs> Tips. <laughs> Tips of love. Tips. Tips. Yeah. <laughs> Make the world a better place. So, <laughs> so Nathan. <laughs> We we really need this before the Israel Palestine. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So Nathan. Okay. (laughs) What is our tip for good today? Well, Michael, our tip for good today is to every now and then run the defeasibility test on yourself. Mm -hmm. What is the defeasibility test? Well, Michael, I'm glad you asked. So the defeasibility test is. A philosophical test that we try that you try to run on yourself to make sure that you believe what you believe for logical reasons and not because of either emotional reasons or because of that, because that's how you were raised. I've taken now, this test before. So you stick the swab up your nose and no, you no, rub no, it no, around and that's then you put it, it in the thing it. and you wait 15 no, that's, minutes. I know this that's, test. That's, that's the COVID test. Oh, that's the COVID we've test. also told people to take that test on We themselves. have told people yes. to do that. Okay, okay. This is a different test. Different this test. Is a different and test. you can't, test. you can't stick anything up your nose to test for it? Unfortunately not. Okay. Um, I mean, I guess it is, I mean, you are picking your brain, I guess. Lobotomy? Metaphorically. Lobotomy? Metaf- <laughs> metaphoric- <laughs> metaphorically. Metaphorically. All right. Um, and it's very simple. All right. So let's all run the test right now. Right. I want all of you to think about something that you feel very strongly about. All right. That you believe very strongly. All right. Something that you would defend if someone were to attack it or try to argue, uh, argue the opposite, Mm -hmm. like something that you're very passionate about. Okay. I want you to think about it. And now I want you to imagine a world in which you don't believe that, Mm -hmm. what would have to be different in that world Hmm. for you to believe something else? What evidence would have to be presented to you in order for you to change your mind? Mm -hmm. And if your answer is nothing, that's not good. Because that means that you have not come to your conclusion through logical means or through an actual reason. There's not a core reason you believe what you believe. Mm -hmm. Because if there was a core reason that you believe what you believe and you took that core reason away, you wouldn't believe it anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And the thing is, if you don't have a core reason that you believe what you believe, then you can't expect anybody else to believe it either. You Mm -hmm. can't be upset if someone else does not believe what you believe either because you don't have a core reason for believing it. So think very carefully, what would have to be different? What information would have to be presented to you in order for you to change your mind? And the thing is, it could even be something that is somewhat silly, but still reason-based. So let me give you an example. I feel very passionate about disability rights, right? I strongly believe in creating an equitable world for people with disabilities. Now, if you were to ask me, what would my defeasibility test on that be? What would have to be different? I would say, well, if you could prove to me without a shadow of a doubt that every single person with a disability was secretly evil and wanted to go around murdering people, then I'd change my mind. Hmm. And I'd say, you know what? Maybe this whole disability rights thing is not what we should be doing. Now, That might seem like an extreme example, but it does get at the core of why I believe what I believe. The reason why I believe what I believe about disability rights is not just because I do have a disability, but it's also because 
I do believe that whether or not a person has a disability is in no way reflective on their moral character. Yeah. And because of that, they people with disabilities do not deserve to be treated less equitable or less equal than non-disabled people. Mm-hmm. All right? That is the core of why I believe what I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. Which is good. I mean, that's it's not only a good test for determining whether your beliefs are fact-based. It's actually a good exploratory exercise as well to explore the you know rationale and and underpinnings of of the things that you think and believe and the things that you know you should be looking for if you're looking for disconfirming evidence of your beliefs really interesting absolutely yeah and also this is a good test that you can run on other people if you're gonna have an argument with them like before you even have an argument with someone ask them hey so out of curiosity uh what would it take to change your mind? What evidence would have to be true in order for you to change your mind about mm-hmm. this? And if and if they come out and tell you nothing, nothing would change my mind, then don't argue with them. Yeah. Because they just told you, I am not intellectually honest. Mm-hmm. I am not interested in actually having a conversation. I am interesting in spouting something that I don't have a core reason for believing. And that's tips for good. So for our next segment, we are wading into a pretty contentious topic, and it's one that, you know, both I think Nathan and I are both nervous to tackle because it's challenging to get right. And there's probably no great answer, regardless of how effectively you think through it. Um, But I think like it's core to the functioning and the purpose of our show that we talk to you guys about this and to try to unpack it a little bit. So specifically, yeah. we're talking about the current uh, war, as as uh, you know, it has been described, even by the parties involved, um, between Israel and Hamas uh, in Palestine. Yeah, and um, there are probably going to be some emotions in this segment because this is an emotional segment. This is. An emotional thing that's happening. And one of the things that I've been really disappointed about is that there have been a lot of um there have been a lot of people whose political opinion I respect, whose solution to this has just been to not talk about it. Mm-hmm. And the reason why they're not talking about it is because this is a controversial issue. This is a contentious issue. Um And this is an issue in which no matter what you say, even if you say what should be the most obvious thing in the world, there's going to be a large number of people that are going to get on to like descend upon you. Yeah. But the thing is that should not fucking matter because political commentators have a responsibility to use their platforms to talk about potentially controversial issues, talk about potentially contentious issues, because your viewers do deserve to know what is going on. Now, you do want to make sure that you are presenting the facts Mm -hmm. before giving commentary, and that's what we're going to try our best to do. Mm -hmm. You do want to make sure that you are not letting your emotions get in the way of potential facts, which... There was actually a story in this in which for a little bit, I I kind of jumped the gun in believing something before looking at it a little bit more and yeah. realizing that the answer was anything but uh, verified, Yeah. Um, which we'll get to. Yeah. But just, just, just understand we are doing this because I know that we don't have a huge following, but we do have a consistent following. Mm-hmm. And you all deserve to know what is going on and you all deserve to know where we stand on this. Yeah. One thing I do, one kind of disclaimer I do want to make about um, the facts. And I think it's implied in what you were saying, Nathan, is that this is a rapidly evolving situation. And not only is what is happening on the ground evolving, but our understanding of it is changing really rapidly. Like the, Reporting is coming out quickly, and um, 
there are a lot of unknowns on the ground. I think like ultimately we have to caveat many of the facts that we present with, uh, you know, the fact that they're still evolving. And ultimately we yeah. may, you know, in the future, like as we reflect not just this podcast, but as the world reflects on the facts of how all of this unfolded, they may differ from how it appeared on the ground at the time. Um, and so, you know, ultimately, like, all, much of this is subject to change. The things that aren't subject to change are that human lives are valuable, that civilians have to be protected, and that, you know, there is no excuse for indiscriminate killing of innocent people regardless of where they were born or what their government is doing or what people that look like them are doing yeah those things don't change and i think that that's something that really needs to be said on the offset so to start out this all started with a massive attack that was carried out by Hamas. Now, Hamas is basically this authoritarian governing group that took control of Palestine decades ago. Yep. And is both is partially like partially a governing group and partially just a straight up terrorist group. Yes, yeah. And and we've actually seen similar patterns like this before on smaller scales. Yeah. Because what usually happens is where Israel will take some type of action or make some type of policy that further that further discriminates against Palestinians because as it stands there's about 50 laws on the books in Israel that directly classify Palestinians as second class citizens. Like that is that is a fact. They're not given equal rights within Israel. And prior to this conflict, Gaza has been treated basically as an open-air prison. Um, and people in the West Bank have continued to lose their houses to settlers from Israel. That has been happening. That is, that is just a fact. That, is ha that has been happening. Um, so what led to this was there was some potential concerns over conflicts between settlers in the West Bank which if you're you know if you're unfamiliar with the region you have the uh, the Gaza strip which is a very narrow uh narrow strip which is in the eastern region of Israel so then you have the West Bank uh which is obviously on the western part of Israel and borders Jordan now there have been there have always been efforts by Israel to push Palestinians out of homes within the West Bank uh, and put Israeli settlers in there. Yeah, because this is a contended region. Neither yeah, side this has is settled on it being like belonging to one nation. Yeah, exactly. So normally it's a policies change. You know, in the past, it's a, it's been a policy change that has then led to a violent attack by Hamas, which has then led to a um, to a response from Israel, which is never proportionate. In this case, it was a crime of opportunity. So, because Israel took some um, some took troops from the border of Gaza to the Western Bank, there was an opening for Hamas to come in, and they wreaked havoc. Yeah. There's there's no other way of saying. This was an, a brutal attack on Israeli civilians in which men, women, and children were killed, and the death toll was over a thousand. Yeah. And that is unequivocally immoral disgusting and unjustifiable yeah regardless of the ways in which palestinians are treated by the israeli government and there are very very legitimate criticisms that we have talked about on the pod collective punishment by targeting civilians is never 
justified yeah. ever. And yeah. I don't give a shit what that government did. Direct targeting on civilians is never justified. Collective punishment on civilians is never justified. Yeah. So anybody on the Palestinian side, and I have seen some activists make this argument who try to say, you know, this is just them taking back their land from Jewish settlers. Or this is, you know, I, I saw one person basically say, oh, so your, uh, your sympathy with Palestine ends when they start being, when they start being violent. What did you think we meant by desettlement? Not fucking this. Yeah, exactly. All right. Yeah. Not this, not the indiscriminate targeting of women and children. Mm -hmm. Like, are those, are those children really guilty of that? Exactly. Are they? Yeah. Like, are all, are all Jewish civilians in Israel guilty of that? No, they are not. These are the actions of the government. And this is something that we've said on this pod before. All right? You do have to separate criticisms of a people from criticisms of the government that, that governs those people. You have to separate that out. Yeah. Yeah, the attack from Hamas was absolutely brutal. An estimated 1,400 people killed... 3,400 people injured in Israel, um, launching over 2,000 rockets at South and Central Israel. Um, like Hamas militants, like charging in on motorcycles, um, uh, on paragliders, boats. Like this was a large scale, multi thousand militant assault on this region of of Israel, including attacking Jewish settlers, killing, like, slaughtering small towns and kibbutzes, like, like attacking a music festival that was in the desert and killing uh, hundreds of people, as well as specifically their intent was to not only kill as many people as possible, which we now know from documents and plans found on the bodies of Hamas militants that that uh, died in the area but they also intended to gain leverage over israel by by kidnapping and and taking hostages which estimate are estimated to be about 200 to 250 hostages hostages that were taken by hamas and then uh are being but they think that are being held in gaza yeah um and like this and was like <laughs> this attack was we now know, like, clearly intended to terrorize the people of Israel. This attack is replete with war crimes by a terrorist organization. Their goal was to, to quote, like, this is quoting from planning documents found on uh, Hamas soldiers' bodies, to quote, kill as many people as possible, and um, to seize hostages, as well as surrounding schools in order to kill and kidnap Israeli children. Unforgivable. Absolutely unforgivable. Unforgivable, unjustifiable. I don't care what the government of those civilians did. Unjustifiable. Yeah. yeah. And Senator, like one thing that I think puts this in perspective, Senator Jamie Raskin uh, of, of Maryland released a statement calling this, quote, the most murderous assault on Jewish civilians since the Holocaust. And to put it in perspective, this is the equivalent relative to the population of Israel, like, you know, on, on a proportionate, you know, this is proportionally equivalent to a dozen 9-11 attacks. Hmm. Yeah. And I think it's also important to note that one of the things that does make conversations about the Israel-Palestine conflict difficult is almost always when there's a flare-up of, of conflicts between yeah. Israel and Palestine, we see a sharp increase of hate crimes against Jewish people and hate crimes against Muslim people yeah. all around the world. Yeah. And those should be condemned. Of course. A Jewish person in Australia has nothing to do with the Israeli government. Mm -hmm. All right which is why it is also disgusting 
that in Australia, there were protests from people who were chanting, fuck the Jews and gas the Jews. Holy fucking shit. And that should also be unequivocally condemned. Yeah, absolutely. But what should also be unequivocally condemned is the deliberate targeting of civilians in response to this attack by the Israeli government. Yeah. To be clear, it is apparent that these that that the effect on civilians is deliberate. It's hard to yes. imagine that it's otherwise because well, they admitted it. So an Israeli army spokesman, uh Daniel um Hagri openly admitted that the uh the purpose of the heavy bombardment is quote on damage, not accuracy. And on October 11th, so almost a week ago, about a week ago, uh, since we recorded this, the Israel army boasted that 6,000 bombs weighing a combined 4,000 tons had been dropped on Gaza. They boasted about it. They bragged about it after their spokes, after the army spokesman said that the focus is on damage and not accuracy. Which that language sounds a hell of a lot like the language that Hamas used to justify the initial attack. Yeah. Especially damage and not accuracy. And damage and not accuracy. It's not like they're bombing, you know, a rural area. It's not like they're bombing yeah. in the middle of Montana where damage but not accuracy can take out fences and not people. Like the Gaza Strip is one of the most densely populated places on earth. Yeah. 2.2 million people squeezed into 140 square miles. It's like the size of like Philadelphia with 2.2 million people in it. It's Yeah. You don't if you drop a bomb inaccurately there, you kill civilians. There's no way around it. Yeah. Like Gaza's smaller than Rhode Island. Yeah. The Gaza Strip is smaller than <clears throat> Rhode Island. And also to put into perspective the number of bombs, which again, that is an old number. That is a number from a week ago. Mhm. All right, that 6,000 number, that is a number from a week ago. To put that into perspective, that is equivalent or nearly equivalent uh, to the amount of bombs dropped in Afghanistan by NATO in one year. Yeah. Jeez. So, yeah, so in, in response, you know, we saw a quick mobilization by Israeli forces. Um, again, like, this was an incredible intelligence failure on uh, not anticipating, not preventing this attack. And... Um, their, their, you know, military quickly mobilized after the attack had subsided. Um, and, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, ha declared that, quote, Israel is at war. And then, and, um, they have launched, you know, fighter jets, like bombing 130 targets. And I think this was a week ago as well in the Gaza Strip and the defense minister, uh, ordered a complete siege of Gaza, cutting off electricity, um, blocking fuel, food, um, from entering the area, which is, like, we'll talk through a bit of the humanitarian implications here, but, you know, Gaza's already one of the most heavily blockaded places on Earth with, you know, I think nearly 80% of the population lacking clean drinking water on a good day. Um, yeah. And so, and yeah, and so the Israeli military has also mobilized about 300,000 reserves. Um, and to Nathan's point, in the first week, dropped 6,000 bombs um, on the area. And there are 2.2 million people that live in Gaza. Yeah. Half of which, half of which are children 15 or under. Yeah. Yep. Half. I'm, you, a, you, a child can't be a terrorist. You can't, yeah. You cannot tell me that that is justified. You cannot tell me that it is okay to indiscriminately bomb children. Yeah. You cannot tell me that. You cannot make that argument. All yeah. right? That's, like, that is such a heinous belief. And the fact that the duh position in American politics is not, don't bomb civilians— 
The fact that that's not the duh position. The fact that trying to call for a ceasefire mm-hmm. so that civilians are no longer being bombed. The fact that that is not a duh position just speaks to the fundamental failing moral fiber of our government. The fact that it is considered controversial, the fact that only the most progressive uh, members of the House called for a ceasefire, tried to bring a resolution to call for a ceasefire, Mm -hmm. the fact that only 13 members of Congress issued a two-page resolution to urge the Biden administration uh, to immediately call for and facilitate de-escalation and a ceasefire to urgently end the violence, as well as the need to, quote, prominently send and facilitate the entry of humanitarian assistance into Gaza. And they were being dragged through the mud for that. They were being criticized for that. Yeah. When 6,000 bombs... Which at this point, it's definitely been more at this point. That was a week ago. All right. Yeah. I mean, the latest casualty numbers at this point that I've that I've seen. uh, Have been more than 2,300 Palestinians, and that's as of that's as of uh, yesterday, which there's sure to have been more today. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. And to be clear, like. Israel has a right and an obligation to its people to defend 100%, itself. 100%. 100%. Um, and to go after Hamas, like, take it out root and stem. And, like, you know, destroy this terrorist organization. But it just cannot come at the cost of the collateral damage of the people of Gaza. Yeah. No matter how difficult that is. Those two, like, those are both moral requirements. Yeah. 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 And I, and that should not be a controversial thing to say. Yeah. And, and Israel has uh, attempted to warn the people of Palestine, of northern, of northern um, Gaza, to uh, move to, a, like, a safer territory in Gaza. So they've warned about a million um, Palestinians to... Uh, flee to the south of Gaza to avoid the most significant likely ground invasion into the northern part of of the Strip. The problem here, unfortunately, is that, well, there's a bunch of problems. One is that while hundreds of thousands of people have fled, this is already worsening their incredibly difficult circumstances. Right? They don't have the, the food or the fuel or the water or the means to flee and provide for their families and their children at the same time. And so like these are you know refugees. And at the same time, moving millions of people um, is puts like a strain on the whole region and, and they're fleeing south to a place called Can Yunis. Um, whose population has already gone from 400,000 to more than a million, so more than doubling the population in the last two weeks. But at the same time, the South is not significantly safer. Like, South, the South Gaza area is still getting struck with bombs, and women and children are still being killed as they flee to the South at, in an attempt to evacuate and follow the guidance of the Israeli government. So literally, like just on Monday night, more than 100 people were killed after this, you know, southern safe haven in Gaza was struck. And there's just no further southern place to go. It borders on on Egypt, and the border with Egypt, the crossing point, is closed to the refugees from Gaza. So there is just, like, this attempt to save the people of Gaza by getting them to flee rings hollow. Yeah. Well, they even said it themselves that they don't care about accuracy. They care about damage. Mm -hmm. All right. Hell they're hitting refugee camps. Um, the, uh, the Jablia 
refugee camp, which I probably said that wrong. I apologize. Um, which has a population of 35,000 has been bombed several times, two of which are now known as uh, the uh, Trinus and Sika massacres, where like dozens of people who are in refugee camps, which are supposed to be safe havens, yeah. have been bombed. I mean, schools are being bombed. Uh, houses are being bombed. Families are being taken, are, are being completely taken out. The Palestinian health minister has said that one Palestinian, this is according to Al Jazeera, the Palestinian health minister has said that one Palestinian has been killed in Gaza every five minutes in the current attacks. And at least 45 three-generation families have been killed, wiped from the civil registry, the, minister, the ministry added. They're yeah. purposely targeting civilians. This is collective punishment for the actions of Hamas. And if we, agree, if we can agree, which we all should agree, that the actions by Hamas were collective punishment against Israel for the actions that Israel has taken against Palestinians, if we can agree that that is wrong, that you cannot collectively punish civilians, that, that Hamas was wrong to collectively punish civilians, you have to also agree that the collective punishment of Palestinians is just as immoral. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so far, more widespread. Yeah. And to be fair, the interpretation that Hamas was going after Israel specifically to, as a response to, like, you know, the kind of apartheid state that they're facing is like the most generous interpretation of Hamas's motivations, which we know are to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. So, like, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But the, yes, but your point is exactly right. It's 100% on, which is just, yeah. Life has value and collective punishment, the killing of the indiscriminate killing of civilians, um, is wrong no matter who's doing it. Yeah. And the Human Rights Watch has also uh, confirmed that white phosphorus is being used in Gaza, which is a chemical weapon that is illegal. You cannot, you, you cannot tell me that you are carrying out a war against a terrorist group if you are dumping chemical weapons onto civilians. You just can't. You yeah. cannot do that. Yeah. And fuck, what is the Biden administration doing? The State Department sent out a memo to its diplomats specifically telling them don't use phrases like de-escalation or an end to violence or ceasefire or end to violence slash bloodshed or restoring calm. The Biden administration is directly telling its diplomats not to try to de-escalate, not to try to push for a ceasefire, not to try to push for an end to the violence. The Biden administration is a fucking failure of leadership. The easiest thing anybody should ever be able to do is to say that the deliberate, the deliberate attack of civilians is wrong and we will not support that. And only 13 members of the House of Representatives are saying that. Only 13 members of the House of Representatives. And the saddest part is... This really does show you how little that we have learned from 9-11. I want to talk about one response to, to the, uh, the calls for ceasefire, the, the resolution for the ceasefire that I think is really telling. All right. So this is from uh, Jake um, uh, Alchenkloss. I, I, I think that I have no idea how you say that name. I, I do apologize. Um, who is a Democratic representative from Massachusetts. On Twitter, he wrote, quote, Calls for de-escalation, even if well-meaning, are premature. Israel needs the military latitude to reestablish deterrence and root out the nodes of terrorism. Israel did not ask America to de-escalate on September 12, 2001. And you know what? Israel fucking should have. Yeah. The whole world fucking should have. Mm -hmm. 
you're really using that as an example for not de-escalating? Because you know what 9-11 led to? 9-11 led to two wars, one of which was a company was a country that had nothing to do with it whatsoever, one of which was against a country that that hid the people that did it. Two wars that lasted decades that that destroyed the American economy, that cost thousands of American lives and hundreds of thousands of civilian lives. And you're using that as an example of of what you you're, yeah. you're using that as your example. Yeah. Seriously. We've learned nothing about 9-11. All right. Look, after 9-11 happened, Osama bin Laden needed to be hunted down and killed. You will never you will never hear me say you, you will never hear me say that say otherwise. All right. He, sh he should have been hunted down and he should have been killed. Absolutely. But we did not need to invade entire countries and start wars killing thousands of civilians in order to do it. It needs to be more strategic. And you might say, well, that would have taken too long. Seriously? We were in those wars for two decades. Yeah. You cannot tell me that, like... That to try to be more precise on it, that precision and intelligence to try to root out the actual people that did it, you can't tell me that that is somehow like is somehow the more difficult option. You can't tell me that. So we've learned nothing from 9-11. We've learned nothing. Israel is going to continue to collectively punish the people of Palestine, the people of Gaza for the actions of a terrorist group that was, again, what Hamas did was completely unjustified. But meanwhile, the United States is going to watch and cheer because we have learned nothing about our history. We have learned nothing from our history. And this is the weakest Joe Biden has ever been. This is the most disappointed I have ever been with Joe Biden. You cannot support this. Earlier, I talked about the, the bombing of that, of that refugee camp. I want to read you some accounts but from that. In case you think that this is justified, in case you think, well, this is just collateral damage. A 31-year-old uh, a told Al Jazeera, witnessing it, I thought that the camp would be the safer option because it was so full of people, and I thought it wouldn't be targeted by Israeli planes. I saw terrifying scenes of dismembered bodies, men, women, and children. I couldn't bear it. I broke down. There was another woman who was on the scene who ran from her home searching for her three sons who were in the market at the time of, the, at the time of one of the explosions. She found one of her sons trying to give first aid to one of his friends who was badly injured. She said, I tried to comfort him, but Muhammad kept saying, let me go. I want to go with Yusuf. I cried. There was so much blood. Yusuf was bleeding so much. She continued by saying, I have never felt such intense fear. I didn't expect this bombing. Everyone in the camp is shell-shocked. Another person who witnessed it. The camp is still reeling from the Turnus massacre. My family is in shock. We lost our friends, our neighbors, the beautiful memories we shared together. They wiped out everything. The buildings were all destroyed. Do the Israelis think that this destruction will displace us again? I will never leave my home. My children and I are staying here. The sad part is, though, there might not be a home for them. When Israel is done, there might be nothing left. And if the United States keeps cheering this on, keeps letting this happen, refusing to say anything about it, when it takes the so-called extreme left to be able to say the most obvious thing in the world, which is don't bomb civilians, this will continue to happen. Children will continue to die. 
innocents will continue to have their lives, their homes destroyed. If we cannot agree on the basic, the basic premise that no targeting of civilians, no matter who those civilians are, no matter what their government did, no matter where those civilians were born, if we can't agree on the basic premise, the basic premise that you cannot do that, that that is off limits, if we cannot agree on that, then we have truly lost our moral fiber. We have truly lost our humanity. We need some empathy. We need a ceasefire. We need this violence to end. Punish the sons of bitches that carried out the initial strike. The Hamas individuals that carried out the initial strike. Find them. Punish them. But stop killing civilians.